DMT Media and Audio Boom, this is the Dead Man Talking podcast with me, Alex Hannaford. I ended the last episode by mentioning there had been some pretty exciting developments with my investigation after some legal experts got involved in the cases of Diamantina Colahaco and Andres Miscoro. You're going to hear all about that in next week's podcast, which is actually the penultimate episode of my investigation. I do hope you'll listen to that one as we gear up to the finale. As I said, there's some pretty big things to tell you about. But today we've got a special extra programme for you. In the past, we've heard from people who knew Arnhel Resendiz, like his attorney Les Ribnick or the psychologist Bruce Cohen. Well, today we're speaking to someone who not only spent lots of time with him while he was on death row, but she also watched him die. Michelle Lyons was spokeswoman for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice from 2001 to 2012. It was Michelle who organised my interview with Resendiz back in 2003. As you'll hear, it was part of her job to witness executions in Texas and she watched 280 inmates die by lethal injection. Last year, she released the book Death Row, The Final Minutes, My Life as an Execution Witness in America's Most Infamous Prison. For over a decade, it was her job to watch people die. It's 2001, Michelle Lyons has watched men and women die here in the death chamber at the Walls Unit of the Texas Department of Corrections. 280 of them, to be exact. What would it do to you to watch people die for a living? Michelle Lyons was a 23-year-old reporter in Huntsville, Texas, when she witnessed her first execution. Looking back, Lyons said that initially it was just a job. But over the years, her views changed. My life as an execution witness in America's most infamous prison. It sort of delivers exactly what it says on the tin. In the beginning, she mainly felt empathy for the families of the victims. Later, she said, though her support for the death penalty never wavered, she sometimes felt conflicted. She's got some pretty unnerving things to say about Resendiz, as she got to know him better than most during his time on death row. So here we are. This is my interview with Michelle Lyons near her home in Houston. I got to know a lot of the death row inmates pretty well, including Angel Matarino or Sendez Ramirez, because he was very popular among the journalists. Um, a lot of people came and interviewed him, so I got to know him pretty well. Honestly, I had actually met him while I was a journalist because I was one of those reporters who had gone and interviewed him several times uh, just to talk about some of the different crimes that he had committed and um, later, of course, got to know him because... I just saw him over and over again, and I would spend a lot of time talking to him in between his media visits, so I got to learn all kinds of details about him. We met about 15 years ago. I was just trying to think. So yes. we, we've known each other a long time, mm -hmm. and you facilitated those first visits that I did in death row, yes. including Resendiz. So yes. the, the tape that we're talking about, you know, you were there when I recorded that tape. And, yes. And, and all the rest of it. Um, and you've just written a book. Yes. Tell me about that. Yes. I wrote a book that is titled Death Row, The Final Minutes. And it's really just kind of a recollecting all of the executions that I witnessed. That was another part of my role working for the prison system because I had to basically coordinate the reporters who were witnessing all of the executions. I had to also witness those executions myself. And between my role as a reporter for the Huntsville item and then as a spokesperson for the prison system, 
when I finally left in 2012, I had witnessed almost 300 executions. So the book really covers just all of my memories of that, some of the more bizarre cases that I had seen and some of what I saw and heard in the execution chamber. And um, we do talk about Resendez because I definitely have some very vivid, colorful memories of him. What would you remember about him? You know, I mean, obviously I know what he kind of looked like and stuff, but what about his demeanor? Resendez was always funny to me because, well, first of all, he was very flirtatious with me, which I always thought was so bizarre and amusing. And yet at the same time, it was very creepy. And gross. Yeah, it was, yeah and gross. <laughs> he was a very petite man, mm. you know, um, very small Hispanic man. Um Usually he was he was not clean shaven, which you're supposed to be. Um, that's you know part of the grooming policy, but he very rarely was, and almost always flirtatious. So there was this one day where I was wearing red, and he went on and on about how you know beautiful red was on me, and I was like, okay, I will never wear red again to death row as long as I live, and I never did because I was like, if I ever wear it again, Resendez is going to think I wore it for him, and I can simply never have that happen. So I did not ever do that. The funniest thing about him that I recall was that there was a time where we used to allow the death row inmates to have snacks. We would allow the journalists to buy them um, soft drinks and snacks from the vending machines. And he had this thing about Coke. He loved Coca-Cola and hated Pepsi. I mean, he was very, very adamant that if you were going to buy him something, it had to be Coke. I mean, how dare you even suggest you have a Pepsi? So we would allow the journalist to buy this. And then he would insist on posing with it. And I mean, you would, if you were going to take a picture, he would hold the Coke can and display it like he was Vanna White, you know, on, on the Wheel of Fortune holding this Coke can up. And it was the funniest thing because we used to joke that he was trying to get an endorsement deal from Coca-Cola so that he could, you know, promote it as being like the the drink of the Texas death row inmates. So that was funny to us. That's so odd. I remember buying him stuff from the vending machine. I mean, sort of essentially wouldn't, the interview wouldn't go ahead without this. Not that he actually said that to me, but that was the implication. And I know that was kind of why they stopped doing that in the end. Yeah, we stopped doing it because it was, well, Resendez and yes, another serial killer. The two serial killers were kind of hijacking the reporters on this. They were holding them hostage. Like, if you don't buy me this, this, and this, we're not doing the interviews. And so we finally said, you know what? We're not doing it anymore. The other thing that Resendez had done to me, which, I mean, at the time it was it was funny, but it was so creepy because one of the journalists had said they were going to buy him some snacks, but he didn't know what he wanted. And I had gone up and, and asked him. Because one thing, so that we could make sure that nobody was introducing contraband, we had to handle the food when it came out. We wouldn't let the journalists do it so that we could make sure that they weren't going to stick anything to the packages that wasn't supposed to be there. And so I went up and asked him what he wanted. And he said, anything that looks as good as you. And I was like, oh, my God, no. And I and I literally said this. I said, you know what? You're, you're getting donuts. That's what you get. You get donuts. And I, like, slammed the phone down. And he just – I sat there and watched. He was just laughing, just giggling. And I thought, you're so gross. Horrible. Yeah, but, you know, that's that's how he was. One thing that everybody knew about him, you know, regardless of whether or not you agreed that he was truly – insane or what his mental status was, everybody agreed he was extremely intelligent. I mean, that nobody would dispute that. He was extremely smart. And mm. so, I mean, it, 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 I think everybody agreed that that it was very probable that he was doing that very much on purpose. It was very calculated. Reading the um, trial transcripts, I went back to the Texas State Archives and kind of went through them. And I think that they said he was above average intelligence. I mean, his yeah, IQ was, was pretty high. Let's go into the media interviews. He always said yes to these media interviews, did he? 
For the most part, yes. When he first arrived on death row, he had a ton of media interviews. And the way he was doing them at first, he was pretty much agreeing to all of the Spanish-speaking media first and the big ones, the national ones, and then he was doing like the Texas media and such. Then he started agreeing to local media and then like the smaller ones. So at the time, I was a Huntsville item reporter, so I was like dead last. I mean, one of the last ones that he agreed to. And then after that, uh, yeah, he pretty much agreed to anything that came out. And and a lot of them do because it's a chance to get out of their cells. And he liked attention. That's interesting, the, the liked attention bit. Do you think that the liked attention bit went as far as telling journalists what they wanted to hear? Because you spoke to these journalists after they'd done the interviews, presumably. What sort of stuff did you hear from them about how the interviews went? Do you think there was a consistency with what he was telling them so like he told the same thing to everyone he wasn't sort of making stuff up for me and something different up for somebody else I don't know that he always told everyone the same thing and I'm not to say that he was lying just that I think he picked what he wanted to say to each person you know I don't think he gave everybody all of the story I think he gave each person pieces of the story so it would take several of you talking to one another to put the whole story together. I think that mm. he liked it that way. I think he liked being a puzzle. He couldn't remember specifics about the crimes. And I always found that almost unfathomable. How could you not remember the specifics of killing somebody? That's such a you know, big incident, a dramatic thing. Talking to Resendez, he told me about a couple of the murders. And here's what he told me. He told me about a couple that he murdered supposedly. And see, again, I don't know a ton about some of his crimes. You know, as the prison system, you know, obviously we didn't sit in on the trials and we weren't really necessarily privy to a lot of this stuff. He told me that there was a house that he broke into and that when he was looking around, he saw a picture of a couple and that the guy was wearing a military uniform. So he reasoned that they must support war and therefore he had to kill them. And so when the couple got home, that's what he did. He killed him, you know. And that that's basically what happened when he killed Claudia Benton, mm. that he saw pictures in her house of fetuses, and therefore he reasoned she must support abortion. And my recollection, was she not like a pediatric surgeon? Yeah, she was a pediatric exactly. surgeon. Exactly. Yeah. And so – you know, I mean, that – and so we got into a discussion about that, and my point was, okay, but if you're killing, does that not mean that you're evil? And he said, no, because I'm doing God's will. And I said, so are you telling me – because I always got the sense he did like me. And I said, so you're telling me that you you like me. I mean, you, you and I talk all the time. I said that if I told you that I'm pro-choice or that I support, you know, the military, that you would have to kill me. And he looked at me and he said, yes, you would have to die. You know what's smart? Figuring out who you need to hire to take your business to the next level in 2019. You know what else is smart? Starting the new year off strong by going to ziprecruiter.com slash DMT to hire the right people. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education and experience and actively invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the US. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a thousand reviews. 
And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash DMT. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. While he was on death row, he made these other confessions. You knew him. Do you get the sense that he would have been making this stuff up, these confessions, in order to prolong his time on death row and, no. and delay his execution? No, because I don't really think he cared about dying. No. I, he, he wasn't that type of inmate. You know, there are inmates who made stuff up or would make stuff up because they didn't want to die, but Resendez didn't care about dying. So, no, I think if, honestly, if Resendez said these things, I think it's because they were true. My gut reaction is if Resendez said he committed these crimes, he probably did. He tried to waive as many appeals as he could, which doesn't strike me as somebody who's trying to delay their execution. No. There were death row inmates who, when you spoke to them, you could tell that they were afraid to die or they there were definitely inmates that you just knew or were making up whatever excuse or reason they could to try and, and stave off that date. Mm. But that wasn't Resendez. You know, if if he was saying it, I think the reason was he was – it's not even about getting it off of his chest either. It's not like he doesn't have a guilty – or didn't have a guilty conscience. You know, that wasn't it either. It wasn't like he was trying to do the right thing. I think he was saying it because he did it. And – probably wanting to have credit for it. And, I mean, there probably was a part of him that didn't like that somebody was doing time for a crime that he committed. Do you think that was part of it? Like, yeah. Did, he, wanted a cre- he wanted credit for these crimes. Yeah, because he saw himself as being this avenging angel, you know, ridding the world, eradicating the world of evil. I mean, that is truly how he saw himself. Mm. You know, or at least that's what he always told me he saw himself or his role as being. You know, mm. he thought he was God's little messenger sent to rid the world of these, quote unquote, awful people, evil people, people doing ill. He sold his fingernail clippings on eBay, and Which you talk about that in so the book. gross. Who wants to buy anybody's fingernail clippings? I mean, that's just nasty. But yes, he did. He did sell his fingernail clippings, and it was caught. Um, you know, Texas has some pretty strict murderabilia laws, which, um, for anyone who doesn't know, is the sale of anything that is only made valuable by the fact that the person is notorious, and usually because they are a killer or they've committed some horrible crime. And so in Resendez's case, he was selling his nasty fingernail clippings and people were buying them on eBay. And that's so gross. Uh, There's someone who was with the city of Houston who kind of specializes in, in murderabilia and monitoring that, who found it and brought it to our attention. And so when that happens, we can monitor their mail and what they're sending out. You know, we have found it a couple of times with some other high-profile cases. There was one death row inmate who was sending out T-shirts that he was signing. So we, we were monitoring his mail and making sure that they're not sending out anything like that. Tell me about you witnessed his execution. I did like Resendez, but I did not have one problem with that execution because... He was a scary individual. And there were other inmates that I had come to like, and so their executions were difficult for me. But his was not because 
even though I liked him and enjoyed visiting with him and such, there was not one part of me that didn't think he deserved to die for what he had done or that he wouldn't do it again because there was never one doubt in my mind that if he was let out, he would absolutely kill again. So it, it was not a problem. For Can me. you tell me, um, I've never been in the death chamber in Huntsville. Obviously, I've been to the walls unit. I've never been inside. So take me inside. Sure. Um, on the day of an execution, the inmate, when he gets up in the morning, is allowed four hours in the morning to visit with his family and friends. And he did have people that would come and, and visit. If I recall, there was a woman that he was romantically involved with. She was called Nancy. Yes. And she was from Ohio. Once those visits are concluded, then the inmate is loaded into a transport vehicle and they make the trek from the Livingston facility, the Polanski unit, to Huntsville to the Walls unit. And they arrive in the early afternoon and they are taken from the transport vehicle into a holding cell area that's adjacent to the death chamber. And once they're there, um, they do just general processing stuff. They take their fingerprints to make sure they have the correct inmate, which by that time they should be assured of. They give them new clothes and then they're, they're put in the holding cell. The chaplain and the warden and I would go and talk to the inmate. And we would go over just really basic stuff like, okay, this is who is coming to witness on your behalf. This is who you want to have your property this is what you've requested for your last meal, that sort of thing. And it really was just designed to kind of see what their demeanor was, to see whether or not they were going to fight, which really hardly any of them ever did. None of them really ever fought. I mean, of all the executions I saw, maybe three of them ever fought. And Rosinda certainly was not among them. Like I said, he was very, very docile. They would spend the afternoon making phone calls. They were allowed to call anyone in the continental United States. So they had access to a phone. And usually they would spend that afternoon on the phone because that's not something they had on death row. So they would use the hell out of that phone calling all kinds of people. And the chaplain would be back there with them if they wanted that. And about four o'clock, they would get their last meal. Then at six, if they didn't have any appeals pending, the warden would go and tell them, you know, come with me, and they would get up, walk into the execution chamber, and then the uh, procedure begins. The victim's witnesses are brought in, the inmate's witnesses are brought in, and they're, of course, kept in two separate rooms that are divided by a wall. And then the media witnesses are separated in those two rooms. You know, you have a couple in one room, a couple in the others. The warden's given the signal that the execution can proceed, and the warden will let the inmate know you can make a last statement. And then the inmate's um, able to talk for a couple of minutes. He did make a last statement. He said um, he let the devil rule his life um, and he was sorry. I mean, he apologized. Which is also strange because, again, everything he told me on death row was that I did this because God wanted me to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I interviewed him in 2003, so that's three years, in three years. But you obviously spoke to him after that, I mean, probably – very close to the execution, he suddenly suddenly decided that he'd done something wrong and that he should apologize for it, which is kind of odd. Another time I asked him if he was going to apologize to the victim's families, and he said, I mean, I guess if it makes them feel better, but it wouldn't be because I'm sorry. I mean, I'll say it because I think that's kind of what I'm supposed to say and it'll make them feel better, but not because I'm particularly sorry. I've kept in touch with Michelle over the years and it was really good seeing her again. It's been 15 years since I first met her 
And as you heard, she was there when I met Resendiz and recorded the tape that this entire podcast is based on. She's pretty sure Resendiz wouldn't lie when confessing to additional murders, which is definitely something to take on board, given that she knew him for so long. That's all for this special episode of Dead Man Talking, but make sure you join us next week for a regular programme as my investigation draws to a close. Dead Man Talking is a production of DMT Media and Audio Boom. The show is presented by me, Alex Hannaford, and the producer and sound engineer is Peter Sale. Additional production on this episode was by Ryan Katz. Our theme song is The Railroad by the band Goodnight Texas. People are still asking about that online, and you can check them out at facebook.com forward slash goodnighttexas. Don't forget to join us on our own Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Talking which is particularly important as we wind up the series and we're going to be posting updates on that Facebook group even after we're done. We're also tweeting at deadmanpodcast and you can email us, as always, at deadmantalkingpodcast at outlook.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.